Exciting news at This Week Health. Starting May 16th, our keynote show is moving to Thursdays. Catch every episode weekly on our This Week Health conference channel. Don't miss conversations with top health system leaders designed to transform healthcare one connection at a time. Subscribe to This Week Health conference and stay updated every Thursday. Welcome to This Week in Health IT. It's Newsday. My name is Bill Russell, former healthcare CIO for a 16 hospital system and creator of This Week in Health IT, a channel dedicated to keeping health IT staff current and engaged. Special thanks to Sirius Healthcare, Health Lyrics, and Worldwide Technology, who are our Newsday show sponsors for investing in our mission to develop the next generation of health IT leaders. We set a goal for our show, and one of those goals for this year is to grow our YouTube followers. Uh, we have about 600 plus followers today on our YouTube channel. Why you might ask, because not only do we produce this show in video format, but we also produce four short video clips from each show that we do. If you subscribe, you'll be notified when they go live. We produce, produce those clips just for you, the busy health IT professional. So go ahead and check that out. Uh, we also launched Today in Health IT, a weekday daily show that is on todayinhealthit.com. We look at one story each day and try to keep it to about 10 minutes or less. So it's really digestible. This is a great way for you to stay current. It's a great way for your team to stay current. In fact, if I were a CIO today, uh, I would have all my staff listening to Today in Health IT so we could discuss it. Agree with the content, disagree with the content. It is still a great way to get the conversation started. So check that out as well. Now on to today's show. I'm going to give you some of your time back. All right, it's Newsday, and we have Sue Shade with us today. Sue, welcome back to the show. Thanks. Good to see you, Bill. Good to see you. You're uh, moving pretty quick. How's, how's the search going at, at Boston? That's going well. In fact, we are at the point of deciding on who we're bringing in for first-round interviews, so we reviewed a very good, strong slate of candidates, and I'm confident that we've got someone there, and uh, we're going to move this along. Fantastic. So for people who don't know, you are currently the interim CIO for Boston Children's in, in addition to your role as a principal at Starbridge Advisors, which is not a small job either. You guys have a lot of people that that work with you at Starbridge Advisors at this point, don't you? We do. We have about 40 plus advisors who have served in senior leadership roles in health IT that are working on uh, engagements available for interim and advisory work. Yep. Good team. Right. Right, so you're you're pretty much not paying attention to your dogs and your your husband at this point because you're you have all that other stuff going on. Well, you know what the the advantage of this particular interim, both given the proximity to where I live as well as the virtual world that we're living in still at this point, is that I am home all week. I am not. Oh wow! Monday morning, coming home Thursday night or Friday, and in a hotel every night. So yeah, I see my husband and my dogs. <laughs> Every day. Wow. That, that's, that's fantastic. What's the major projects? Are you working on the EHR? Are you working on uh, what other things are you working on? That really is the priority at this point, the business case around the EHR path to the future and what we're going to do. So uh, we're circling in on that. And along with all the other projects going on in day to day, but that's where I'm spending most of my focus with the team. Well, we have some fun stories this week. We, we're going to look at telehealth. And telehealth cybersecurity, I've gotten emails where people are like, you talk a lot about telehealth and cybersecurity. I'm like, well, it's, it's top of mind. It's, these are 
the number one and number two things that CIOs are talking about, is that just me dreaming here? Or I think it's the conversation. I'm- I would agree with you. The other is the people side and the virtual and the return to the office. That is, that's a big topic to be figuring out right now how that's going to work. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to tee up the uh, the first story comes from Dr. Joseph Kvedar's keynote address to the American Telemedicine Association. He was a guest on the show. Uh, you're very familiar with him, having worked up there in Boston with him. So let me give you some of the things that he talks about. So he said last year at this time, telehealth was on the top of the mountain from March to June. 30% of all outpatient activity was conducted via telehealth in contrast to 0.8% in 2019. 0.8%, 1% to essentially 30%. That's a huge show. The virtual visit became the universally accepted concept and by all accounts, patients loved it. Here are a few snippets from the COVID-19 Healthcare Coalition survey, of which ATA is a member. 83% of patients reported overall high-quality visits. 78% said the virtual care visits were with their regular provider. And he comes back to that theme later. And over 75% said they would continue using telehealth for chronic disease management. What's going to be the driver? If you think about this, what's going to be the driver moving forward do you, do you think it is going to be patients asking for it? Do you think it's going to be uh, systems transitioning as the payment models adjust to, to telehealth visits? It's just more, uh, it's a more efficient way of doing some visits. I mean, what's, where does the conversation lead us? What, what drives it moving? I think the first one about patient asking and convenience is probably the biggest. So many people figured out that it works, that they can have their have their visits with their with their physicians from home. I, I just there's some this is the article that has some stratification by age groups, right? Or is that the other article that we were going to talk about in terms of yeah, no, it is it, the other article talks about this stratification. The younger population is absolutely asking for it. The older population is sort of looking at it going, I I want to go back to where we were before. And when you think about that older generation, they're, in some cases, they're isolated and lonely. They That visit to the doctor, when I talk to my parents, they're like, oh, we're going to the doctor today. That's an event for them. And they they enjoy that event. I know. And maybe you're the one who has said, or someone else has said their mother in particular, maybe not so much their father, elder dresses up. It's a big thing to go to the doctor. If, if, you're, if you're younger, you're working, you got commitments at home. It's like, okay, what time is my telehealth visit today? I got to just squeeze it in amongst everything else. So clearly convenience, I think, for not just young people, but many generations. And obviously the reimbursement. He's got something in there about the original legislation that still needs to pass relative to reimbursement. So that's got to go hand in hand with it. And he also talks about, now I'm going to confuse the two stories, the brick and mortar story, but I think Dr. Gavadar in this one also talks about physicians falling into their old ways. Yeah, just come back into the office. That's the way Yep. Right. And, and that's actually one of his big, big themes. So he, he goes on to talk about the numbers have come back. Commonwealth Fund said 50% less. The Another survey by Fair Health Telehealth Tracker found that claims have dipped from 7% in January 21 to 5.9% in February. And he, he says this is about really the hybrid model sort of kicking in and all the normal return to 
what is common to us, what is familiar to us and whatnot. And he talks about an example of a dermatologist and they say, if they do the first visit for caring for acne via telehealth, they're more prone to do the second visit as a follow-up as a telehealth visit. But if the first, if the first visit happens to be an in-person visit, they're more likely to just schedule another visit for that person to, to come back. So there's, there's sort of this magnetic pool. So that's one aspect. Uh, the other is reimbursements. And he says, when I talk to other provider organizations, I hear common themes dragging them back in to an in-person dominant care model. Themes such as filling beds and charging facility fees come up repeatedly, not to mention the threat of lower reimbursement for telehealth visits compared to in-person. This payment, and this is one of the things that the ATA is really heavily focused on this and making sure that you can practice telehealth across state lines are, are two of the primary things I think they're focused on right now. But this this payment model is is one of those things that's that's going to be the sticking point. What do you think providers want it to look like going forward? I mean, is it truly reimbursement at parity? I would think it's reimbursement at parity. And I would think that provider organizations want to work with their patients over the full spectrum or continuum of care. So let's just go back to that bed point, filling beds. I mean, who's thinking that an outpatient in-person visit, an ambulatory in-person visit versus a telehealth visit is going to make a difference on filling beds? I mean, does that make sense? No, I mean, an ED visit would fill a bed, but not an ambulatory visit. Yeah, but ED visits are happening. You're not doing... um, Right, I agree. You're not scheduling a telehealth visit instead of an ED visit, right? So what's the right balance to really have patient-focused care over in, in, in the right care setting? So I, I see provider organizations, as long as there is the right reimbursement model, continuing to encourage and figure out how to support virtual care and individual physicians working that into their their cadence and their schedule. It's interesting as I look at this because there's almost there's a call later on in this and he says providers must resist the strong magnetic forces that draws them back to in-person brick and mortar world and find the right balance of in-person and virtual care, which I agree with. We need that balance. And it's yep. not going to be everything's going to virtual care because everything right. can't be done in virtual care. It's going to be some balance there. Okay. Uh, but then he says, healthcare systems must, I love when I hear that, you must, you, but anyway, healthcare systems must embrace value-based care rather than fee-for-service model that brings people into facilities. This is difficult after experiencing a period of significant financial loss. It's interesting when we look at healthcare systems and we say, hey, you must do this. It's not in your financial best interest. It's not in your normal practice. So you're going to have to change a lot of things. You're going to have to invest in the future and do other things. You must do these things even though financially it's not in your best interest while these other players are standing, these, these new entrants are standing these things up without the legacy Uh and and the overall infrastructure uh, to move forward. I mean, when I hear that thing, if I was a CIO, if I just put my hat back on, I'm a CIO at St. Joe's Now we were mission driven and we, we tried to do the right thing in all cases, but there was a certain reality, certain financial reality that we had to look at all the time. All right, we're going to go to telehealth and we're going to start losing, I don't know, $30 a visit, $40 a visit. Are we going to be able to make that work? And does that work for increasing access, 
improving quality and those kind of things. So we have to put a we have to put metrics around those things to make sure that what we're doing is not impacting the quality of care, obviously, and it's increasing access. There's no question that it, it does increase access. In fact, there's an article I covered on Today in Health IT last week, which said, in fact, it is driving overutilization in that people are, once they realize how convenient it is, they're more prone to call in. But this yeah. shouldn't be a bad thing, right, for us. We, we want more touch points with, yeah. especially chronic patients, but you know, people calling in saying, hey, I've got this. We want to avoid ED visits and whatnot. This is, and he even says it in here, this is sort of tricky. What's the hybrid? What's the balance? Okay. Do you have a comment there? In terms of the balance, I, again, I'm going to bleed into the other article that we shared on bricks and mortar. I think that's where there was the example of, yeah. of a mother who has had 60, what'd she say over a period of time, 60 specialist visits yeah. for her a uh, child who's got significant medical issues and how often does she have to drag her <laughs> how often does she have to move go in physically with her yeah. child for those visits versus the telehealth so I, I just go back to convenience and and finding the right balance and the other thing is if you as I'm sure you've seen in metropolitan areas that you're in I can say it here in, in New England and specifically around Boston, a push to build out new ambulatory centers in the surrounding towns and suburbs so that you're not driving in to the heart of Boston and all the traffic hassle. So you take that one step further, you're making care accessible there. One step further, what can be telehealth visit instead of coming even into one of those satellite centers? Yeah, and it's interesting to me because United Healthcare did this uh, retroactive look at ED visits, and they were going to deny claims based on, on the criticality of the nature of the care. But the reality is, some people have been trained to go to the ED, and I think it was New York Presbyterian. In fact, I'm sure it was New York Presbyterian. Daniel Barchi talked about this on the talk, and he said they actually created a pilot where they had uh, one door went to the ED. And then the other door went to a, a, a telehealth visit, essentially. So they could get triaged before, or they could even be sent from the ED over to that saying, hey, look, you could, you could do this over here. It's just a lot better experience. And I don't remember all the details, but the cost on one side was almost like seven to 10 times the amount as the cost on the other side. I, I never really understood that. It's in the same building. It's because you're seeing your primary care doctor instead of seeing a, an emergency visit kicks off a lot of a lot of yep. things, and there's a lot of infrastructure to support that. I, I get the I get, I get that from that perspective, but that's why we need more ambulatory surgery centers. It's also why we need a very clear message, I think, to our communities that says, "Look, start your visit here. Unless you're bleeding and and those kind of things, start it here. Start a conversation with this doctor via telehealth. In fact." My insurance carrier, I don't have it in front of me now, but my insurance carrier sent me a, a thing that said, start all your engagements with your healthcare system through through Teladoc, offered through my insurance carrier. It's really not a bad model because you don't want me self-diagnosing. I can't diagnose myself. But I, it's great to have a trained uh, medical professional on the other line of the phone who can potentially do, what, 20, 25, 30 visits an hour, really, if depending on how long the, the calls go. So, so I'm curious. So in that plan, is that 
with Suteladoc, is the provider you're actually talking to part of the health system that you would ultimately go to? That your uh, PCP is connected. No, I, I, actually, I don't think they would be. Okay. All right. So this is where I'm. I'm not familiar with with how all these telehealth companies are are working from a model perspective, but provider organizations want you in their system, right? And they want you to enter in their system. So if there's the partnership between those telehealth companies and the provider system, the health system, so that they it's a smooth transition, maybe a front-end triage, right, to a provider, and then you get to someone in your system. Yeah. Is that the way it works? Yep. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, when you think about it, United Healthcare, which happens to be my, the plan that I'm on, they're, we're essentially paying them so much per month, so that's what they're on, on the hook for. And they've done the analysis from a financial standpoint maybe not even an access or, or quality of care standpoint, but they've done it from a financial standpoint to say, look, we can reduce the number of, of visits to the to the provider by offering this service in the middle. And there there's a, a fee associated with it. And yes, from a from a patient standpoint, there is going to be a continuity of care that's right. I think lost in in that right. model. Right. Yeah, Um, I'm I'm smiling because the whole interoperability continuity of care is something that my husband and I have experienced very personally in the recent period. After a couple ED visits and hospital admissions in hospitals, not part of the system that we are connected to. So trying to get the right people talking to each other and the records over and what tests were done and what were the results. It's like, I could write a whole blog on, on this at some point. I just haven't done it yet, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dr. Kavadar does make this as a point. He said, I recently talked to a friend who works at the one of the largest national payer organizations, which led to an important insight from January through October of 2020, local providers, local healthcare providers, your doctor generated 96% of their telehealth claims. And only 4% came from the national providers, which is the Teladocs, the, right. the AMLs and others. Compare that to 2019 when 54% of the claims were from national providers. And obviously 46 would have come from, from the local healthcare providers. And he said the trend is moving back in that direction right now. To the and national providers? To the national providers yeah. once again. Now, there's a lot of ways we can address the continuity of care between uh, a telehealth or between a teledoc and an AMWELL and going to the local provider. It, if, if they are fire enabled and we have decent systems on both sides, we should be able to move those records and the notes back and forth mm-hmm. uh, pretty, pretty easily, I would think. But the other way to do it is to have local healthcare providers provide the right hybrid model that works for their community. And I think it's going to be different, right? It'll be different depending on what market you live in. Yeah, yeah. Well, and you're not always going to be, this was our case, you're not always going to be in your market when you need that care, at least if it's if it's an ED kind of visit. So. Yeah, we'll see. Yes, my mother is looking forward to going back to her doctor. And that's that's one of the one of the things this uh, brick and mortar story talks about. Patients are looking to go back to brick and mortar post-pandemic and they cite a HIMSS study. So the HIMSS study said essentially that 60% of patients want to return to the pre-pandemic experience. 
By the way, I think part of that is we want to return to our pre-pandemic experiences just in general. Exactly. I, I don't know that it's 60% really want to go back to uh, sitting in traffic and trying to get to a, a doctor's appointment. But I use the sitting in traffic because of where I live. <laughs> because of where you live, exactly. A, 2000 persist- a little over uh, 2,000 participants between March and April of 2021. And they asked them those series of questions. But they also found that Gen Z and millennials were most likely to open a telehealth visit. 47% of millennials saying they would prefer telehealth over in-person visits once the pandemic has ended. But these are the the healthy, are the young invincibles, I think was the category that we, the, the people that don't need healthcare all that often, they're yeah. saying, look, when I do, it's usually not chronic care. It's usually not, I just, I just want to talk to a doctor about fill in the blank. Yeah. Yeah. I go back to the balance. How do they characterize the, okay, the silent generation, the baby boomers? Okay, we're baby boomers, not the silent generation. But, you know, my husband's got a series of appointments scheduled with specialists, subspecialists, and we're just looking at what's the right balance. When does he need to be seen and touched by them with some associated monitoring and tests? And when can it be, uh, hey, we're going to call, we're going to review the results on the phone, and we're going to decide what's next? So what's that balance? You know, I think this segue is pretty good into our next story because the okay. hospital room of the future, five innovative uh, innovation execs outline what to expect in the next five years. And as some great content, Tom Andriola at UC Irvine, Nick Patel at Prisma in Columbia, Albert Chan at Sutter, Daniel Durand at LifeBridge in Baltimore, and Mark Weissman, who has been on the show before at Title Health Systems. And the over, we're going to go into this in a little more detail, but the overarching theme is we're moving into the home. Yeah. I think almost three or four of them said, hey, the, the hospital room of the future is going to look dramatically different in the, in the building itself, but they are very much thinking about what does the hospital room of the future look like in your home? Well, yeah. if we can get to higher levels of acuity in the home, I would assume we can do some of that monitoring and some of those other things that we were talking about and telehealth visits to sort of augment those things. Healthcare could look very different in the next five to 10 years in terms of sending people home with certain monitors, or maybe even they have bought devices that have, you know, that are FDA certified to monitor some things. And we're doing, we're getting more, we're getting more signal back from them on an ongoing basis where it's not as required for them to come into the office and we can see them via telehealth. Mm-hmm. So it'll be interesting. I think what you're, you're, what you described the the experience for your husband will be different in hopefully in five years, but, but definitely in 10 years. Yeah, absolutely. When I teed this article up with you and sent it to you in advance, it is what you're saying in terms of what is that balance? What's that spectrum? What a hospital room is going to look like? What are we going to do in the home? And there's still new hospital buildings happening. We've got one opening up at Boston Children's Hospital next summer. It's the Hale Family Building. It's been in the planning for over 10 years. It's 11 story, 700,000 square foot building. And we, we will, once we have those inpatient rooms open, there will be some retrofitting of rooms now in the current building that are 
double rooms into private rooms. I think that's a, a common trend when you see new inpatient facilities opening up. But you're also going to see, I think, much more of the high-end ICU care in hospital buildings going forward. I know we have every room, I think, in our new building is going to be ICU capable. So that's that's a trend in new hospital buildings. So another point that I think that I want to make here is, and I went through this when I was CIO at Brigham Women's Hospital, and we opened up in 2008 a new the Shapiro Cardiovascular Center, which was new inpatient beds and procedural areas and ORs. And we had a visioning. I remember we had a visioning session where we tried to project what's care going to look like in 30 years. Okay. And this was probably in 2005. So do you remember 2005 or 2008 or 2010 and trying to predict 30 years out? It's nearly impossible, right? So how do organizations and CIOs plan for the future with the technology evolving as fast as it is? <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and you have these trade-offs. I had a conversation with a CIO that's, that's a part of building a new building. And we were talking CAT 6, CAT 6E, wireless. Oh, yeah. And you sit there and go, well, there's the, there's the limitations of what's actually available today. There's the demands that don't exist today, but you know are going to exist right around the corner. And so, and then there's budget, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so there's, there's a lot of trade-offs you have to make in terms of, yeah, we know it's going in this direction, but this is all we can do today. This is all we can afford today. This is all we can do today. You want to make sure that the physical, whatever is physical in the walls, in the building, can handle as much as it possibly can because you know it's going to require more later. Right, right. Deja vu here when we were planning that building back in the 2000s, we, we had an issue as the, as the wiring was advancing, CAT, which I, I think it was CAT 5 then. And we had to make a decision. This is, this is what we can do right now. We know what's coming, but it's too late to make that switch given the stage of the building. So those are just some of the challenges you have to deal with technology. But let's talk about some of what's in this yeah. article. So Tom has some good stuff in here. He said, switching gears to the traditional hospital setting. So this is the room in the building. We're seeing significant opportunity for improvement for both medical professionals and patients. For patients, we're seeing creating better experiences in their stays through personalization of the room amenities and services, tiny home concepts to better accommodate families and solutions using IoT, AI, and wearables that make the room more quiet, safe, and even provide for mobility where appropriate. Yeah. That's one of the things I think I, I would love. I've, I've been in a hospital room, I think twice in the last year. They're still loud. There's still a lot of beeping and buzzing and, and that kind of oh, stuff. Yeah. And, oh, yeah. You would think we'd be past that by now because no one's listening to it except for me, the patient. I yeah. mean, I know they're watching it somewhere else, but yeah. you, you want to sleep while you're in the hospital. Yeah, yeah I, that was exactly the experience a couple of weeks ago. Small room, double room with another patient, a lot of beeping, a lot of monitoring. There was the ability to order room service on your schedule, <laughs> food service. The restricted diet. I think we should be past that. You're absolutely right. When I think about hospital rooms, though, the importance of the amenities and the service, the accommodating families, I do think going forward, 
hospital beds are going to be more and more and more the really seriously ill ICU beds. And some of those amenities and services really don't make a difference. It's, right. it's how is that room fitted out to best take care of that patient? But I think we need to be accounting for the convenience, the services, the amenities at the same time. You know, I, li- I like his perspective because he then goes on to talk about the the care professionals. And he said, you know, technology will offer more intelligent, real-time delivery of data to where mm-hmm. they are and not confined to a single place. For example, to a nursing station, yeah. voice assistant, where wearable-based alerts will be used to monitor for sounds that indicate a patient safety issue or immediate uh, alert for the care team. Mobility and miniaturization will also allow for more services to happen in the room, allowing for shorter cycle times and reduced risks. And finally, if we can figure out the great balancing act around augmented intelligence, we can do a better job making the right decision for the patient at the right time while having better predictive capability to minimize adverse events. And that's one of the promises of data, right? So that we're going to be able to look at uh, the data over a larger population and be able to say, look, we we anticipate a code blue event before it actually happens. And yeah. we anticipate a, a fall before it actually happens. We've we've been advancing those technologies for years in 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 healthcare and in the rooms. And the promise is that we have more data, we have access to more data, and we're building out more AI models that yeah. we might be more predictive and be able to deliver that but then there's the other aspect where he talks about delivering it to where the physician's at. So the yes. physician no longer has to be at a certain location to receive the alerts in a in a timely fashion. These are challenging things for CIOs, aren't they? They absolutely are. Scroll to Daniel Durand from LifeBridge. I think he had some good points here where he talks about clinical, and he's the chief clinical officer, he's a physician at LifeBridge Health yep. in Baltimore. Clinical innovations will involve gathering ever more signals from the patient, infrared sound, electrophysiology, pulse oximeter, facial expression, to be sifted in real time through machine learning algorithms that will help physicians refine their understanding of diagnosis and prognosis in ways we can only imagine today. I think that's critical. And I'm just going to take it back. I feel like I'm always taking it back to some practical experience. I watched the video this morning and I'm going to share it on social media today. It's a video that's now available on the Hale building that we're opening up next year at Children's Hospital. The two leaders featured in it are the chief nursing officer and the chief, the the EVP, well, the EVP for patient care, family services, and the EVP for health affairs. And the EVP for health affairs Dr. Peter Lawson talks about the space when he's walking through in this video and how the space is designed. He talks about being in the OR and I have what I need here, right? So that the space works for me. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, CIO, we've got to make sure that technology works for him and all his colleagues as well. So that as he says in the video, the space works, I can do my job. I can focus on doing my job. So we need space and technology designed so that the clinicians can do their job. And what Daniel Duran here is talking about in terms of more more information at the bedside for the clinician 
to, to use in caring for the patient is, is also part of the future. And so kind of a whole different work stream, if you will, than the amenities, the services, how do we make it convenient for the patients and the families? It's interesting as I think through that, there's a challenge here, right? Are we, we just going to wait for those capabilities to show up in our EHR, which is our EHR providers are going to build out some of those capabilities yeah. for sure. And, and they have a, a vast data store, not only from our health system, but also from other health systems. When you think about some of, some of the data stores they can pull together, uh, are we going to look to a third party a health catalyst or someone like that? who also has a fair amount of data and has, it really has built out a, a, a secondary type system that can collect information, not only from the EHR, but from other ancillary systems. Mm-hmm. And are we gonna have to look at those systems, especially when we start thinking about social determinants of health and social factors and bringing all that data in. And then the other thing, uh, so our EHR providers can do it, it's gonna be a third party. I, I don't think we can rely on public health. I don't think we're going to get a lot of great things out of the government at this point. I think they have a lot of things to work on. Um, they have a lot of table stakes and basics to work on. You're the right. Public health infrastructure. So, so we're not going to see it there. But you know, one of the things that just strikes me is we're going to have to become health systems are going to have to become. This is going to sound silly because it's so obvious, and it was obvious ten years ago. But we're going to have to become data ninjas. I mean, we're going to have to be so good at data that. Yeah. I, bringing it in from disparate sources, essentially making that data usable, identifying the, the places where we have to clean the data up and whatnot, and then feeding that into these models and understanding the ramifications of feeding that into the models yeah. and, and the, the bias that exists and all those things. So we're going to have to be really, really good at at, at data, is that something we're going to be able to build out internally? Or is that something we're more and more going to have to rely on on external third parties to help us with? I think it's a combination. And it's a great question. One of the things that I'm starting to think in the in the past, you'd think build versus buy. I think it's John Halamka who talks yeah. about build, buy, partner. Yep. I think at Boston Children's Hospital, we're looking at it that way. Buy build or partner, whatever order you want to put it in. But why should we be building it if there is some new um, entrant in the market that's already doing it and that we can partner with, that we then can hopefully integrate well with our core platforms? Yeah, that's going to be the interesting balancing act, I think, moving forward. I think the battle for talent is just starting, to be honest with you. I think it's going to heat up and get harder and harder. Uh, mm-hmm. especially as funding keeps coming into digital health. I mean, the, the offers outside of healthcare are somewhat more lucrative than they are within healthcare. You mean within private industry, yeah. technology firms, than, than within a provider-based health system? Yeah. I, I mean, I get people asking me about, we're looking to hire a doctor for you know this role within this new startup or private yeah. equity back yeah. or whatever. And- some of them don't pay as well. I mean, doctors generally have done pretty well in this mm-hmm. in this space, but others do pay pretty well. And there's 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 going to be a battle for talent. I think. Let's hit let's hit the last two stories. HHS allocates eighty million to diversify health IT, and the ONC for health IT has established eighty million dollar program to strengthen U.S. public health informatics and data science by diversifying the health IT workforce 
they said on June 17th. And let's see here, uh, this is from their actual healthit.gov website. Through a four-year cooperative agreement, a PHIT workforce development program recipients will be a part of a consortium that will develop a program curriculum, recruit and train participants, develop internship opportunities, and assist in career placement at public health agencies, public health-focused nonprofits, for public health-focused private sector or clinical settings. Again, talking about the talent, they identify that this is going to help 4,000 individuals and that organizations can apply for this. Let me see. I want to to be real clear here. Yeah, there's there's an application process for the program aims to train more than 4,000 people over four years through an interdisciplinary approach. ONC will award up to $75 million to cooperative agreements recipients and use the remaining $5 million to support the program's administration. So there, there's a process to getting access to that money. But the, the real goal here is 4,000 people within minority or underserved communities being trained in the area of public health and data, specifically data and informatics to support public health. So interesting initiative. Curious, I mean, you, you brought this story to me. What, what, yeah. what are your thoughts? Well, twofold. One, we need to be investing in the public health infrastructure. And this is a drop in the bucket of what is probably from the federal government going into the public health infrastructure at this point in time. I don't know what that number is, but it's good that as part of the current administration's plans in terms of healthcare nationally, that there will be more money in public health infrastructure. The second part of the the good or the win-win is recognizing that we have to grow our health IT workforce and we need to have more diversity and a program such as this to train and make opportunities available to people of color is a positive thing in my opinion. So it will help with talent overall and it helps with broadening opportunities for communities that maybe didn't have them in the past. Yeah, it was interesting to hear the seven previous ONC coordinators at the CHIME conference talking about this and how historically underfunded public health has been. And all of them agreed. It's like, we all brought it up. We all made them aware. And, but the problem is we invested significantly on the provider side, on this side. I think they said to the tune of you know, $40 billion has gone into the medical record. And they said, one of the things that happened during the pandemic is all of a sudden we had this really robust, I mean, we don't think of it as robust, but it, it is fairly robust architecture over here on the provider side. And the public health side was com- completely underfunded. So we, we turned this and said, all right, we're going to give you this data. And he said, it was like, it was like taking a fire hose and pointing it at this, this cup and saying, trying to fill the cup. And the, the public health <laughs> infrastructure just, just buckled under that need. And so there, there's, a, I think, a uniform recognition that money has to go in that direction. It'll be interesting to see if we have a unified vision for what what that should look like, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you because you, you have both federal and state right. public health and, and states can vary widely. I know it's not in this story, but I think one of the tragedies, there's so many dimensions and tragedies to the pandemic, but one of them was how many public health leaders came under fire and decided to leave their positions. So there's just a lot of need in the public health space. 
Yeah, I think you have to take everything with. <laughs> I, I recently did a, a review of Skylake's Medical Center and their response to the ransomware attack. And I, I give them a lot of leeway because, you know, quite frankly, they're, it's a small organization that has all the same regulatory requirements that you would have at a very large organization with a lot of staff and a lot of budget. And I know how that goes. They just carve off what they can towards cyber security yeah. and they do what they can every year. And, and the same thing with public health. I mean, you could put those people under scrutiny, but it's not like they haven't been asking for more money for, right. for, for decades. Right, right. So, um, a good segue uh, to the last story on cyber, right? Yeah, yeah, cyber. I think cyber is getting the attention it needs. It will get a lot more money and a lot more funding. Senators introduced bipartisan bill to fight cyber crime. This goes along with the story we covered where uh, President Biden has really put together the executive order, which is moving this forward. A lot of focus on this from from all sides, all, all Congress, from the president. Military. I mean, bipartisan. Just say it, Bill. It's bipartisan. It's 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 beyond bipartisan at this point. (laughs) We're looking at good. They could shut down our pipelines. They could shut down our hospitals. They can shut down our meat factories. They can. I mean, at this point, we're. I think we're all afraid that they could shut. They could just shut down our power in large sections of of the of the country. So there is a lot of things that this particular bill says. If passed, the bill would allow authorities to confiscate communication devices and other tools used to commit cybercrime, enhance, which I can't believe we don't already have, enhance prosecutors' ability to shut down botnets and other digital infrastructure used for a wide range of illegal activities, which is great. As we know, there's probably still a lot of computers across the country where the, the users of those computers don't realize they're a part of the illegal activity because they've been compromised. I create a new criminal violation for individuals who have knowingly targeted critical infrastructure such as dams, power plants, hospitals, and election infrastructure, prohibit cyber criminals from selling across to botnets to carry out cyber attacks. And I saw an article this morning, the FBI director is strongly encouraging. The words were stronger than that. I forget what the words were, but essentially telling people, stop paying ransomware. Mm -hmm. But what's the alternative? I mean, I mean, the, the alternative, now, let me be clear here. Paying the ransom doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get the information back. Doesn't necessarily mean they're not going to ransom you at a later date with the same information. So I understand why not to pay them. But when you're talking critical infrastructure, when you're talking about, can I bring my hospital back online? How do I get my images back? How do I, or the pipeline, how do you, how do you get things going? I mean, we've, We've seen cases recently where uh, the pipeline, I, I forget the number, but I know it was, it was upwards of five, five million bucks was, was sent out. And I think the uh, meatpacking situation was another five million that was sent. So I don't want to put you in the spot of saying, what, what do you do? But it, it, it is a, it's a tough spot. And I think this is a conversation you need to have before you're ransomed. Exactly. And I think the series you've done, I may have listened to all of them. Maybe I'm a little behind on your podcast, given my schedule, but you did a lot of good coverage on ransomware and cybersecurity and preparedness. And that's where the focus needs to be. How do you get ahead of it? How do you prepare? It caused me to revisit where we are with Boston Children's and 
looked at some stuff and I'm, I'm relatively confident. Can you ever be truly confident in terms of your preparations? But I think you've done a great service to the industry. Let me say that, Bill, by highlighting this and educating everybody and focusing on the preparedness piece. Well, I, I am very happy to see the that it is getting more, let's say, coordinated national attention with this legislation, potentially. I see that one of my uh, senators, Sheldon Whitehouse, I live in Rhode Island, is one of the ones who introduced this bill with Senators Richard Blumenthal of Connecticut and Lindsey Graham of South Carolina. The article after scripts by their CEO was excellent. I know you shared that with me. We, we don't have time to talk about it, but being willing to say it's going to take a village, it's not one hospital that missed something and therefore they, they were subject to this. Everybody's vulnerable to some extent. And how are we going to combat this together? Yeah. And uh, last week on This Week in Health IT, we had Carl West on. That was a great episode. And on Friday, we had Mitch Parker. Yep. Both who are pretty active out on social media, and I, I like where they. I, I just like the experience they bring, and I like the the fact that they they believe that we can fight this with with sharing, with knowledge, with getting, with helping each other down the road. This is not an area of competition. This is an area not where we are not where yeah. we're trying to help each other, and that goes across industry lines as well. Yeah, and yeah. So thank you for flagging those. I haven't listened to them. I've been listening to the today snippets. But historically, from being a CIO, it's not something you talk about publicly because you do not want to show your organization's vulnerabilities if you have any, right? And everybody does. We know that. So I think we have to figure out how is that private sharing going to happen across industry so it does and talk about what we can talk about with each other. Absolutely. Sue, thank you for taking some time to sit down with me. I appreciate it. I know that you have, you have a lot more time when you're not in these interim roles, but I also know that you love doing these roles and serving these great organizations. So, I'm helping them. They're happy with what I'm doing. We're moving the ball along. We're going to find the right next permanent person. And uh, I'm always happy to talk to you and share with others. We have to learn together, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, All right Sue, back to work. <laughs> Thanks, Bill. <laughs> what a great discussion. If you know of someone that might benefit from our channel, from these kinds of discussions, please forward them a note. Perhaps your team, your staff. I know if I were a CIO today, I would have every one of my team members listening to this show. It's, it's conference level value every week. They can subscribe on our website, thisweekhealth.com, or they can go wherever you listen to podcasts, Apple, Google, Overcast, which is what I use, uh, Spotify, Stitcher, you name it, we're out there. They can find us. Go ahead, subscribe today, send a note to someone and have them subscribe as well. We want to thank our channel sponsors who are investing in our mission to develop the next generation of health IT leaders. Those are VMware, Hillrom, Starbridge Advisors, Aruba, and McAfee. Thanks for listening. That's all for now.